0: Best thing to win the Masters, you you will be here forever as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the and Golf History Podcast, the show that brings the past into the present and tries to figure out what it might all mean for the future. I'm Rod Murray and on today's episode we may need to call on the help of paramedics as my co-host Connor Lewis is in a near apoplexy of excitement at the prospect of talking to the game's foremost expert on the great Bobby Jones, Sid Matthews. Sid will join us in just a moment and that is a very exciting prospect. First though, a thanks to those who've submitted questions for today's show via the tg history hashtag we 'll come to those along the way to get some of sid 's thoughts also don 't forget you can get in touch with us via email at history at com or by tagging myself or connor on twitter i 'm at rod underscore Murray and Connor is at at s historians both of those links will be. In the show notes. If you like the show, do us a favour and share it with friends and fellow golfers. And for more quality golf content, head over to our home base at www.talkandgolf.com. Check out some of our other podcasts, including State of the Game with Mike Clayton and Jeff Shackelford, and the really excellent Feed the Ball Course Architecture podcast with Derek Duncan. Enough of the homework, let's get to the nitty gritty, and I'll start by bringing in my co host. Conor Lewis, Conor, do you have a paper bag nearby in case you begin to hyperventilate? The trick is to breathe, my friend. Breathe. I can't believe how excited you are about today's show, which is fantastic.
2: Yeah, I am a little overexcited. Uh, this podcast, I've kind of alluded to this on Twitter to some of our listeners, means a lot more to me than most people are aware, including probably uh, Sid Matthew. Um, Sid doesn't know this, not a stalker, but I'm going to go to this level, Um He is literally one of the main reasons why I fell in love with golf history. Uh, His books on Bobby Jones or Bob Jones inspired me to study the history of the game and then in my own special way, do my best to share that history with the masses, which led to this podcast, the Twitter account and all the things that followed. Um, So I am a huge admirer of the man who I call the Bobby Jones of golf history,
1: Sid Matthew. Wow. Well, there you go. It could be hard to imagine a better introduction. And Sid, all of us thank you for imbuing Connor with the spirit of golf history that we now are subjected to on a regular basis via his Twitter account, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, can I say a huge thank you and a welcome, Sid Matthew? Appreciate you taking the time. This is going to be fantastic. Of course, Masters fever in the air, and this must be a time of year where you get a lot of people calling on you to talk about. I think, as Connor said there, a lot of people know him as Bobby Jones, but Bob Jones. Um, so thank you for doing that. We're looking forward to chatting today.
0: My pleasure entirely.
1: I'm going to start by asking, Sid, where does an interest in? Am I right about that? Is he preferred to be called Bob? Did he not? Not not Bobby, as he's sort of widely known.
0: Well, the uh, uh, he preferred uh, the term Bob, uh, although he put up with uh, the British, who claimed him as one of their own citizens, and uh, so he would not. He would answer to Bobby over there. Uh huh. Where did your interest in Bob Jones stem from? Well, I my law firm litigated against Bobby Jones' law firm in the <laughs> 1970s and 80s in a series of uh, class action cases called the Dalkon Shield IUD. Uh, the Jones firm in Atlanta uh, defended the insurance company and the manufacturer of the device, and I represented several hundred uh, people uh, who were injured by the device. What? So I was always up in the, in the Jones law firm conference room, uh, right. at the right. Haas Howell building on Poplar Street in Atlanta and got to know uh, all of his law partners. And, uh, you know, I became interested in really Bob Jones as a person rather than the, you know, the hero as sportsman.
1: I never—that is a nugget I never knew. I didn't realize. Uh, was he still with the firm? actually he—he died, of course, in the seventies. I.
0: Yeah, he actually died right before I got out of law school, so I never had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, but I got to meet, uh, you know, his main law partners—the wow. uh, uh, people who uh, were his proteges: Charlie Yates, Tommy Barnes, Charlie Harrison, uh, Watts Gunn. And was privileged to uh, to actually film them, to interview them, and film them uh, before they got away from us. What's Gun? Now there's a name.
1: What's Gun? Ah, that's fantastic. And a and a heck of a player.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) indeed. Well, uh, he also uh, was in the frequent company of his martini, and his favorite toast was, "How did I say how? (laughs) I meant when (laughs) I know how." (laughs) Love it.
1: Love it, uh, Love a ca- character. That of course was, was a real. He was a real character. Yeah. That of course was a massive legal case, uh, Sid, an, an enormous, you know, an international legal case, wasn't it? Um, I never realized. Well, it that.
0: was. It was. Uh, I was uh, co lead counsel in the uh, two and a half billion dollar uh, settlement um, in the bankruptcy, um, and it, it involved. I think there were three hundred thousand uh, claimants at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, an awful lot so uh you know it was one of the biggies
1: yeah are you technically one up on jones is that what you're saying
0: well we uh (laughs) we were fortunate enough i think the biggest verdict was 4.9 million uh but we we uh did very well for our clients in that in those series of cases and of course uh they were very professional about it Mm -hmm. and uh uh, took their
1: lumps accordingly. Yeah, Indeed. Now, that's not what we came together to talk about. That just caught my attention. Connor, I'm going to set you loose because that's an yeah. extraordinary statement you've made there to, that it was Sid that got you interested in golf history. Tease that out for us a bit, and then you can ask Sid some questions, which, of which I'm sure you've got hundreds, literally.
2: Yeah. I, I would say, um, I mean, this is, you know, oh, gosh, 15 years ago probably is probably when my, it peaked my interest. Two things really started my interest in the game. Um, Oddly enough, one of them was a 1931 University of Iowa yearbook, um, which I'm doing a podcast on called The Lost Champion. Um, And that was a story of uh, George Roddy, who was the first African-American golfer in the NCAA, uh, and he played for the University of Iowa. And I stumbled across his photograph in the University of Iowa yearbook looking at uh, my grandfather's photo, which was the page over. He was the captain of the gymnastics team. And so that piqued my interest and I started studying a little bit more about George and in doing so um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I came to your first book Sid, I think somebody gave it to me and one of the great things about uh, Sid and his books is not only are they informative but they are extremely well written uh, so they're an enjoyable read the, I, I, I probably have oh, hundreds of history books now in front of me and some are well-written, and some are impossible to read, and Sid's are some of the most enjoyable. So once I had one and I finished one, I was like, oh, my gosh, he has more than one. <laughs> so I started buying them. I don't know if I have them all, uh, which I, I guess begs the question, Sid, how many books have you written on Bob Jones?
0: Well, I think there's eight or nine on on Jones. I think there's maybe 15 total. Uh, yeah. I've, I've done... Uh, four or five that are in the can they haven't been printed yet but they they're done uh so uh in case uh, i uh, meet my maker a little early somebody else can take care of printing them but uh uh, books like uh, biography of ob keeler you know who was jones's biographer uh it's a you know very limited audience but uh kind of an important title yeah but, uh, you agree. mentioned Iowa, you know I was born in Iowa. oh, I didn't uh, know that where about I, I, my uh, I was born in Webster City, which is ninety miles north of Ames uh my uh maternal grandmother uh practiced medicine there. She was the first woman to graduate from Washington University Medical School in St Louis married wow. her lab partner, and they moved to webster city where where they uh practiced medicine until they passed uh in the middle 80s how funny so and of course, iowa the- i was got a big connection
2: yeah mm-hmm. clifford roberts by the way was born there as well just fyi to our listeners
0: uh yeah oh, uh, good old cliff
2: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> we, we might come to that where do you find time to study law in between writing all those books or practice law Sid? that's oh, an extraordinary well, workload
0: well you know uh uh Doug Sanders said, I hire somebody to sleep for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that.
1: Uh, that may be, may be the case.
0: But, you know, uh, it's uh, I, I sort of gave up watching a lot of the, the uh, useless television, and I'd, after dinner, slip into the library and, and usually burn the midnight oil, which is how, you know, lawyers operate. Uh, there's no geniuses in the courtroom to... The answer is usually found in the law library late at night, burning the midnight oil. So that, that's held true for a lot of these projects. Yeah, there you go. bit like golf, Sid, the, the,
1: the real work gets done on the, at the practice area. Everyone only sees the big moment in the tournament, but the real work's done elsewhere, isn't it? It's uh, it's always the truth in those things.
0: Well, you know, that, that uh, it's true. Like for Hogan, who, you know, dug his answers out of the dirt, uh, but isn't it interesting that Bob Jones never had a golf lesson in his life, right? Uh, he, he watched, uh, Stuart Maiden play golf when he was age six across the fence from Eastlake in Atlanta and, you know, he'd run home and practice the, the swing. He never had a lesson, so, uh, later in life, you know, he would get, uh, Uh, sideways, his, uh, you know, his stance or his alignment would get off. Usually the ball would start creeping back in the stance. So he'd be pushing it to the right. And, uh, you know, Maiden would would read in the newspapers, like at Oakmont, Bob Jones is blasting his ball, but it's, he's in the adjacent fairway to the right. (laughs) Right. And, uh, or in the church pews, you know, in the church pew bunkers and, so he once sent a telegram to Bob, hit it hard, it'll land somewhere. So instead of that. instead of landing in the, in the church pew bunkers to the right, he was in the adjacent fairway. Oh. And of course, he had a perfect lie and was able to recover. And, but when he got back home, uh, Maiden would take him out on the practice range and he would say, Bob, move the ball up. And then he would say, "Hit now hit the hell out of it. And when Bob turned around to thank him, uh, Maiden was halfway back to the clubhouse. That wow. was the extent of the lesson.
2: Wow, My kind of so teacher. Yeah. That's,
0: <laughs> uh, well, but he, I he think he just... never really, he never really had any golf lessons. It's, uh, it's amazing. You know, he had a, he had a very keen intuition about physics mm-hmm. and of course had a degree in mechanical engineering at Georgia tech at 22. Uh, that didn't hurt. Uh, but, uh, You know, he was able to put that uh, that instinctual genius together uh, to, you know, spin his record, which really only lasted 14 years, which is pretty amazing.
1: It's a gift. Really, Let me ask isn't you it, this. Sid? Sorry, Connor, that's a gift, isn't it? Sid, you you, you yeah, must be man. born with that. Most of us aren't born with that. That, that, that genius. Yeah,
0: you. You know, you. That's right. You and and you're seeing some of these young kids today. Uh, you know, like Speed. Speed has got a special gift. I agree. A lot of these kids have very very special gifts, and uh, not the least of which is putting. Yeah. You know, uh, Willie Park, the the first uh, British Open champion, said. A man who can putt as a match for anyone, and he's so right.
2: Yeah, indeed.
0: Sorry, Connor, I cut you off there. But.
2: No, th- no, that's quite all right. right. Um, I've read that um, beyond just Bobby Jones, Alexa Sterling and Perry Adair had swings that were almost identical to Maiden. Do we know, I mean, this isn't a Bob question, but did Stuart Maiden give them lessons, or was it the same kind of approach of just watching the master swinging and kind of adapting his swing as the round?
0: <laughs> Do we know? Well, yeah, we do. Uh, actually, Alexa Sterling lived directly across the gate from Eastlake. Her dad, Dr. Sterling, was an ophthalmologist, and, um, and she took lessons from Stuart. She was two years older than Bob, and uh, she was really the first champion at Eastlake. Absolutely. You yeah. know, she won three uh, uh, women's amateur championships in a row, uh, one of only nine women to do it. Uh, but but she actually had lessons from Stewart, as did Perry. You know, Perry Adair was the son of George Washington Adair, the, the father of golf in Atlanta, so-called, uh, because he was the uh, president of the Atlanta Athletic Club and uh, acquired the property to build Eastlake from Harry Atkinson, who founded Georgia Power. But Perry was lucky that his dad was wealthy enough that he took him all over the south and uh and allowed him to play in uh you know tournaments all over and every now and then they'd grab little Bob Jones and drag him with them. So he he was lucky to have the benefit of that as well. But you know sometimes they would uh, people would say, "Oh, I see Stuart Maiden is here in this golf tournament." And they say, "No, no, no, it's a little kid. His name's Little Bob Jones." Yeah. That's how I, that's how close their swings were. Right.
2: One of my favorite stories, and I believe it's a story you told, was uh of one of Bob Jones's favorite trophies that he won from uh Alexa. Would you mind sharing the story with our audience?
0: Yeah, uh, Frank Frank Metter uh was a little pal of Bob's. Uh he was also age six. Alexa was age eight. She's eight actually eight and a half. And they uh, had a summer cottage adjacent to the fence at East Lake, and the kids would uh, dig a hole in either end of the dirt street, and that was uh, two golfing holes for them, and they would right. just play on the dirt road, uh, and Miss Better decided that she would put up a little uh, – uh, it was really a, a kitsch cup. It was a very small silver cup, and she'd have a little tournament for the kids, so – Alexa really won it. She posted the lowest score, uh, but uh, they gave the trophy to Bob, and Bob said, I always felt very guilty that I won that thing because Alexa really deserved it. But he said, that didn't mean that I didn't have it under my pillow every night. (laughs) That's the best part. He took it to bed with him. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Well, Out Out of
2: all the trophies.
0: Well, there's one other too and that is uh, uh November 22, 1925, the clubhouse burned down. Yeah. And it burned down all of the golf clubs including Bob Jones except for Calamity Jane. Yeah. So I postulate that the only woman that he ever slept with other than his wife Mary was Calamity Jane. It was under <laughs> his bed.
2: That. And for those on Twitter, that's part of the story I told I think later last month the uh it's the greatest trophy or the most beautiful trophy you can't win was actually the trophy. It was the original Havemeyer trophy that burnt down. Uh, Jones had won it in, what, 25 from Oakmont, the U.S. amateur, and burnt in that fire, did it not?
0: It did, and then they, they replaced it with kind of a space spindle uh, oh, uh, I totally design. Agree. <laughs> and so I, I went over to uh, my friend Nick Winton at Gerards of London, and said, Nick, we got to reproduce the Habermeyer, and right. so we got a photograph out of uh, CB McDonald's book, Scotland's Gift Golf. I have to in front of him. Uh, and you know, there's a photograph of the original Habermeyer trophy with dripping with serpents and oh. and uh, snakes and all kinds of stuff. And Nick uh, reproduced one side, cast it, and then reproduced the other side. And we now have a genuine replica at Eastlake of the original Havemeyer uh, that started in 1895.
2: I've actually seen that one. And as I understand, I might be mistaken on this one, but the only way a club can display an original Havemeyer trophy is if they hosted the U.S. Amateur prior to 1925. I don't know if that's fact, but I know there's a replica now at National Golf Links of America that I saw last year and, of course, Oakmont, where... It was last um, handed over to its victor, which was Bobby Jones, of course. Um, they have one in their display case as well. And I think that's, there's a, to my knowledge, I've only seen or heard of three. And I didn't know you were part of that, Sid, that well, movement to have it
0: reproduced. Yeah, yeah, we, we initially uh, made the uh, entreaty to USGA to have copies of all of the Grand Slam trophies at Eastlake when Tom Cousins... Uh, you know, refurbished it in, in 1995. And so we went to the USGA and, and got their permission to allow us to uh, reproduce it. Uh, then we, of course, had the copies made of the current uh, amateur and open trophy. We got the RNA to allow us to do the British uh, open and amateur trophy. And we have the Walker Cup trophy. So we've got them all.
2: Oh, beautiful. And, and, and listeners, if, you, if you're listening to this right now and you have not seen the original Havemeyer trophy, in my opinion, it's the most beautiful of the Grand Slam trophies. Uh, I hate to say this, but it's so much prettier than the Havemeyer trophy we have today. Um, I, I just think it's one of the most beautiful trophies I've ever seen. It's that beautiful. Now, let me ask you this, Sid. So you had a, a, a photo of uh, from C.B. McDonald's book. The other side of the trophy, is it an exact duplicate of what you have on it? Or is there, what's on the back? I mean, yeah. is it,
0: yeah. Yeah, we is had it, to, we it, had, what we had to do is uh, do, uh, do one half at one, one half at a time and then merge the two. That so was the we genius know, behind it.
2: Yeah. Do we know, is there a, a lost half of the U.S. amateur trophy, of the Havemeyer trophy? In other words, all these duplicates, I assume, are have been made from the same mold. Those in National Golf Links, uh, the USGA Museum, uh, yours at uh, East Lake. Um, is there? Do we know if it was a it du- was it a duplicate side anyway, or is there a la- you know a lost half of that trophy? Does that make well, sense? what I, I'm asking.
0: Yeah, it does, uh, and that would require that we go uh, look at all of the photographs of the champions yeah. with the trophy. Mm. Uh, I, I've got, uh, a, a book full of them and I, you know, I never really have tried to see if they turned it around a lot of times, things, like yeah. uh, they'll show the the British amateur trophy and old Tom is facing the other way. It's backwards, but yeah, nobody knows, yeah. yeah, you know, but, yeah, but so uh, true. that, that would be an interesting study to get all of those photos prior to 1925 and and see if maybe they flipped the trophy around when they were presenting it and photographing just it. One time, be right? one just one time, right?
1: You just need yeah. one. Yeah. might well, be a book. You no, you've got nothing else to do. You could write a book about that. You- yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: it's a force. Just, Absolutely. Just, be before a, I let Connor a book back of pictures. At yeah,
1: before I get let yeah. Connor back at you, Sid, do we know why the new Havermeyer trophy wasn't just a replica, why they didn't just replicate the old trophy? Was there any reason ever given for that, for why changing the whole shape of it once it had been lost in the fire?
0: Well, well, this is this is uh, what we uh, we face today with uh, golf uh, committees. Yeah. Um, when whoever's in power wow. is going to try to put their signature uh, on a golf course, and I think the same is true with the trophies. Uh, you know, they probably figured that they could not reproduce it uh, uh, because it was so ornate. So yeah, so unique. And, and, and so I'm just guessing, but uh, you know what we find with uh, golf course committees is that they always want to tinker with the golf course and put their fingerprint on it. You know, I say that uh, you know uh, no dog can go by a fire hydrant without lifting his leg, and <laughs> and most of the people who are on these golf committees, they want to change a hole, and then it becomes you know John Adams' hole or whatever. Uh, that's why Alistair McKenzie said. Uh, every golf course should have one person on the golf uh, course committee and that's it. Yeah. yeah. And he never makes changes. (laughs) Right. Right. You just establish what is there.
2: Brilliant. Really, really brilliant. I, 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 by the way, I um, I nerd out when it comes on, you know, I, I call it lost golf courses. I study a lot of those like the, the original Shinnecock and then try to map it out and then even get the opportunity to walk or video the lost golf course. And, this falls right in line with that. Now we have to know, Sid, what does the back, <laughs> the back half of, that look like. <laughs> of the Havemeyer Trophy look like? I mean, I'm, I have goosebumps right here even thinking about it. Because what if it's different?
0: How, how <laughs> well, I've got, I've got a bunch of uh, uh, pictures of the trophy at various times. You know, Von Elm won it uh, in um, 24, Beat Jones. Uh, we got pictures of it then. And I've got it in, in various uh, forms being held on a table uh you know standalone so uh i'll, I'll pay some attention to that after this yeah. and see if yeah. we can uh, uh solve the riddle you and i can chat amongst okay. ourselves sid
1: connor's already on his way from florida to your place to have a look <laughs> <laughs>
2: right <laughs> yeah. in the car yeah. right now that's yeah. so true get so uh... well let's let's go into his championship years as we move in so uh as you mentioned, we have, at least in the major championships, we have a, a window from essentially 1916 to 1930, which is beautifully bookmarked by, uh, or bookended by Marion, right? Starts off at Marion, ends at Marion. Let's walk through, I'd say, the, what everyone calls uh, the seven lean years, right? So I don't think a lot of our listeners know. Let's start off at, at Marion, and, and we won't go through all the majors you know, from 1916, to 1923, because I think... I know for sure I'd love to have you back on the podcast to do a deeper dive, but that first U.S. amateur in 1916 at Marion, um, would you mind going through for our audience who probably don't know, how young was Jones? Was he uh, a well-known figure in golf? How was he received, and how did he do?
0: Well, of course, you know, uh, Jones was born in um, St. Patrick's Day, uh, 1902, so that made him 14 years old. He was the youngest ever to contest a U.S. Amateur, and he was known as the the Dixie Whiz Kid or the Boy from Dixie. Uh, he was he could he could blast it pretty good. He was you know he'd hit 250 yard drives, and uh, that was good back then for Hickories and a 80 compression mush ball. And but, you're 14. Uh, <laughs> And you're fourteen, you're brash. Uh, you know you're, you're he was uh, a pudgy little kid, you know he was he was not nearly the movie star idol that he looked like in the thirties. Uh, but uh, you know here here he's facing uh, people like Robert A. Gardner, who had won the the amateur a couple of times and uh, and uh, Jess sweetzer, uh, who was uh, nineteen twenty six British uh, amateur champion. He won the uh, amateur in uh, 22, uh, American amateur in 22 at Brookline. So, you know, he's facing some national competition, really, for the first time. And he'd never really been outside of Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, he was uh, he posted a very uh, confident medal score. And, uh, uh, and finally, uh, Robert A. Gardner put him out um uh, but it really gave him uh, a thrill because he saw you know kind of how he stacked up against the competition and what he needed to do to get better um, it's kind of interesting that uh uh Travis uh the, Travis the grand old man the grand old man of golf uh you know who won the british in in 05 uh, actually it was 04 Uh, he was there and he was asked uh, to give Bob Jones a putting lesson. Right. Great story. And uh, Jones was staying in town and they had to catch a train to, to get out to, uh, uh, to Ardmore. And they missed the train and he missed his putting lesson with Robert J. With uh, uh, Walter J. Travis. And of course, Travis said, Jones is uh, a a, a wonderful shot maker. Of course, he'll uh, improve when he figures out when to make the shots, you know, the occasions upon which he makes them. Uh, And his putting is faulty. And what he meant by that is that Bob's feet were about shoulder width, uh, had a wide open stance, and used kind of a uh, slapping stroke, kind of like Walter Hagen did. So he'd kind of slap at it and let the ball roll. You know, the the putters then had maybe six degrees of loft. Yeah. uh, You know, and so they they would jump the first half an inch or an inch off the ground. And uh, that didn't really promote uh, the perfect strike, which is uh, hitting the ball in the equator with overspin. But later, uh, Travis was uh, at Augusta, uh, and they were playing a match uh, at the Augusta Country Club. Uh, I think Jimmy Octenden was involved in that. And uh, Travis then gave him a putting lesson in the locker room of the Augusta Country Club that really transformed him into the greatest putter, really, that, uh, that we've seen. And what he told him to do was put his heels together, and to uh, get his hands uh, more over overlapping, uh, closer as a unit, uh, and to use a hinged stroke, which would be to take it straight back and then come come straight through, so that you really are de lofting the club. You know, most putters are ascending loft. There's only uh, recently we've had uh, two patents that have come out that have descending loft, which actually uh, have been proven by the pictures to uh, deliver a perfect strike at the equator with overspin. But Jones did that by de lofting the putter with his hands with this hinge stroke, and of course that's why we we see uh, you know pictures of him that that it looks effortless but it's a very very power, powerful stroke.
2: And that lesson was I know it was right before he he got, he won the US Open in 23. Do we know was it 23 or 22 that he actually caught back up with Walter Travis? Do you know? I I, I it slips yeah. my uh, my memory.
0: Yeah, you're 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 really talking uh, closer to 24 25. Oh, okay. Um, so it's yeah, past it Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was later. When you look at the photographs of him, you know, eighteen years old, uh, you know, uh, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, you'll see he used varying stances, but they're all wide open. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't until after the lesson in in twenty-five, I believe, uh, and he and he used that um, when he went up and played against Watts Gunn which was the first time that two members of the same golf club have ever that's competed right. in a major championship. And of course Watts stood up on the first tee and he said, Bob, you going to give me my usual two strokes aside, like you do at Eastlake. <laughs> and Bob looked at him and he said, I'm going to give you hell. You little SOB and, and Watts used to say, and he did too. He beat me eight and seven. <laughs> eight,
2: seven yeah. And I, that was at Oakmont and 25. And that's just, oh, it's such a good story too, isn't it? I mean, we yeah, could do a podcast just on some of these majors that he
0: he, he, he played it, because the stories yeah, you get are so a, rich. You get a couple of martinis in, in Watts, and boy, he would really entertain you with those two stories, oh. too. It was, he was a real character. So let me ask you this. So those seven lean years, uh, and
2: I, people hate it when I ask these hypotheticals, but I'm going to give you one. Um, if Jones doesn't miss the train ride to Walter Travis, 1916, does he, is it a seven-year wait? you think, I mean, was that a big piece? I know temperament was another huge piece of his game and, and, and I'd love you to jump into that too, but was, was it a big enough piece in, or hole in his game that from 1916 to 1923, what do you, what do you have picked up? I mean, it was in so many finals that, you know, could have turned one way or the other was the hole that deep or was it a combination of youth temperament and maybe putting?
0: Well, I, th- I think I think the answer is, uh, you know, he, he won his first major at Enwood in 1923, and he was using the old putting style. Yeah. And then in 24, uh, of course, he he, he lost to uh, uh, George Von Elm. Uh, a big loss. And, it
2: was a big loss, too. Uh,
0: you, well, you can see he's got his head and his hands. He's in the in the yeah. photographs. He's you know, he's he's beat.
2: Well, yeah, and, he lost uh, 9-8. If I, if I lose 9-8, I'm beat, too. <laughs> so
0: yeah. That was a tough, yeah. tough um, Well, his, you know, maybe a tougher one was 1922 uh, at Skokie. Uh, he probably uh, could have won, could have, should have, would have. And Gene beating beat him. Yeah. Uh, Bob tied, tied with Johnny Black, but uh, they're riding on the train. O.B. Keeler and, and uh, Jones are riding on the train. They get on the train, and there's Gene with the trophy. Yeah, and I I interviewed Gene on this, and, and I said, Do Gene, tell me what happened. He said, Well, Bob said, uh, Hey, I'd like to play you for that trophy. <laughs> and, uh, and and I and and Bob Bob's story confirmed corroborated by Obi Keeler was that he got on the train, and and uh, and Gene said, Hey, Bob, I bet you'd like to play me for this trophy. And Bob cool. said, no, Gene, no, Gene, uh, you know, you want it fair and square. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is a little bit more in keeping with Bob's uh, demeanor of being genuinely modest and not being a big blowhard. Right. Um, uh, but it's a but it's a great story. But it goes to show you, when he went into his uh, car, uh, uh, he looked at OB Keeler and he said, OB, you know, I think I need to quit. Uh, I'm just, I'm never going to make it. I've, you know, I beat my head up against the, the stone wall and here, even Gene Sarazen can beat me. And Keeler then looked at him and said, Bob, you know, you're the greatest player that ever lived. And when you get that notion in your head, you're not going to win just one. You're going to win a bunch of them. And I think that's the answer that it was a matter of him, uh, getting, uh, in, into the mode that I'm going to win. And of course, you know Bob never played against uh, Mano a Mano. Right. Uh, he believed in playing against a mythical figure, Old Man Parr, and uh, you know beating Old Man Parr as as far as he could. And I think you know his key to success would be uh, winning by five six strokes. You know he, when you get into a tight contest, one putt you know is is a deciding factor. And the hardest tournament for him to win, of course, was the British Amateur, because any Tom, Dick, or Harry can put you out in eighteen holes, which was the qualifier. Yeah, you know the first sure. rounds are eighteen holes, and and if you get somebody with a hot putter, which he he ran into plenty of those. Uh, so, so the answer is you you have to, as he said, uh, and then this is Obk, this is uh, uh, Stewart Maiden for you. Stuart Maiden said. When you get them one down, get them two. When you get them four down, get them five. When you get them eight down, get them nine. You know, he said, shoot the works. That was Stuart Maiden's philosophy. The way to win golf tournaments is to shoot the works and get so far ahead that you demoralize the everybody behind you. So, uh, insofar as putting, yes, uh, if you got a, a tournament that uh, a putter can make the difference, um, you know, he was not going to win that many, but... He was he only won one of the British amateurs,
2: yeah, yeah so, the, the last so one, the one that counted the most of course nineteen well,
0: but yeah and and he did yeah. that really by superior forces, you know he he beat uh, everybody by large margins, except maybe sid roper uh you know roper was the the coal miner from nottingham, yeah. he was the bogey man from nottingham see he was supposed to bogey every hole and uh Bob, Bob went out in uh, f- five strokes after four holes, and he was only one up on him. He had holed out from Cottage Bunker. <laughs> Bob holed out from Cottage Bunker. I mean, you know, if, you, if you've seen that shot, uh, it's a beauty. It's unbelievable, right? You know, it, it, you look at that British amateur record,
2: though. I mean, what I think people fail to recognize is unlike the U.S. amateur. He only played in it, what, three times? So his his winning percentage is actually like thirty three percent, which is all
0: time. Well, his his overall winning percent is forty. Yeah, yeah. And the closest was Hogan was thirty seven, and that was for Hogan's full career. You know, Bob is only he was only uh, uh, in in contest fourteen years. You know, for instance, uh, uh, Nicholas was eighteen percent, but that's because of his longevity over thirty some years. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I think that that really is the answer. But insofar as efficiency, you know, Jones won uh, the most tournaments faster than anybody. And uh, he, he won 40% uh, of the, you know, the tournaments that he played in in the, in the last seven years. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look at uh, uh, the total, I think it was 23 out of 52 tournaments that he won. Yeah, And that's I mean, pretty yeah. astounding. Absolutely. And if you look also uh, from from uh, the la- in the last seven years, he was first or second in eleven of thirteen U.S. and and British championships that he played in. I, eleven I think of another- thirteen. Remember, he quit the first one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. He 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 withdrew in the first one, so that one was out. Uh, but uh, you know. 11 out, of first, 11 out of 13 first or second places in the U.S. and British Opens that he played in. That's the record.
2: Wow. And, and his Open Championship record, I believe he's three for four. Is that correct? He played yeah, in four. Yeah. He won three of them. And the, and the first one was, what year was that? I'm trying to think. The first one was 22. Is that right? Am I wrong on yeah, that one? Play-
0: yeah, he played at Skokie in 22, and Gene beat him. Yes, that's right. Right.
2: Yeah, and then 1921, he played St. Andrews, correct? And that's the one where, let's just ask, I'll ask you this, because it's a great tie-in, right? He didn't finish, uh, he did. He uh, basically played four rounds, but didn't count. Now, the question is for you, and you'll know as well as anybody in the world, I assume. In 1921, St. Andrews, the question,
0: did he tear up the scorecard? Uh, No question that he tore up his scorecard. You know he he was on the eleventh hole uh he had turned in forty six uh doubled number ten, yeah and he's and he's hot and he puts it in <laughs> hill hill bunker on the left, not Strath on the right, and he took three uh, swipes at it, and uh the ball uh came out in his pocket. Yeah. And he yeah. asked the he asked the score for his scorecard. He tore it up into little pieces and threw it in the Eden River. He then asked his caddy for his driver. He drove off of twelve. He finished the match, uh, even though he had withdrawn. And then he they allowed him to play the next day and he shot par seventy two. Oh. oh which would have been second lowest amateur uh <laughs> next to the uh playoff uh, uh Competitor uh, Roger Weathered, uh, but for what he called the most inglorious failure of my golfing career, quitting. Yeah, what? and of course so, the British press roundly criticized him and and said, "Well, it looks like Master Bobby, the Dixie Whiz Kid, is a boy and a rather ordinary boy after all." I've always so he missed, went home I with they, his I, tail between his legs. You know, it had yeah. to had to fortify him, refortify himself. Mm.
1: Can I just Which ask, he did. Do, do we know why they let him play the next round? That seems almost incongruous, doesn't it, after an incident like that?
0: Well, he, yeah, uh, uh, the fact is that uh, he didn't have anything else to do. He wasn't going to go to the movies, and I think that they figured, you know, that they they probably figured that they were after the gate because everybody was out to see this, this Dixie Whiz kid. Yeah, yeah. And so they probably let him play out of pity, and 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 because so many people had come to St. Andrews to see him, to see him play. Yeah, yeah. So let him play. So you it's know, kind of a Tiger Woods deal, you know, yeah. where Tiger is the draw.
2: And 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 Rod, to that point, I mean, the RNA uh, and the officials uh, that held the Open Championship were. Quite amazing, quite frankly, to Americans. And this is a different example. This is actually for uh, Johnny McDermott. In uh, 1914, Johnny McDermott uh, missed his tee time for the qualifying rounds in Prestwick and showed up during, like, missed his tee time. They were halfway through the qualifying rounds, missed his tee time, and out of just, I, I think, the understanding that someone had traveled so far to play in this tournament, they were going to allow him to play in the qualifier, with a marker. And to McDermott's credit, he said that wouldn't be fair to the field ended up taking the ship home, which, of course, got hit by another ship and almost sank. But the point was that they were extremely courteous to Americans. And I, th- I, I think, plus the gate, I think McDermott was coming off of, you know, two-time U.S. Open champion, so he was probably a gate draw as well. Uh, but I, I think that does play into it. They, they really wanted us to come enjoy their Open champion. They didn't want us to win it. But on, they definitely on. want us to come contend for
0: it. Well, I think that that is the point. Uh, you know, if you talk to Walter J. Travis, he'd take issue with you because, oh, you yeah. know, when, when he right. went over in 05, in, in um, uh, you know, he had to change his shoes in a driving rainstorm on the on the back stoop of the building. Yeah. And, and it made him so mad that, you know, he stormed after. Uh, the whole field and 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 you know subdued them and beat them, uh, but you know the, we've had. Uh, uh, I'm uh, doing a book on Walter Hagen now, and you know one of the one of the big uh, issues was uh, Walter uh, causing a row by saying that the reason why the Americans have won the Open from 21 to 34 when Cotton took it for the first time is because they were lazy Ooh, and yeah, yeah. You can imagine the firestorm <laughs> Lord North Lord Northcliffe, you know, uh, just, uh, uh, toasted him in the newspapers. Yeah. And, and Walter said, well, you know, I wasn't trying to be, uh, you know, discourteous, but the fact is that, you know, they believed that they were the universal man and that they had their occupation and, uh, golf was, uh, just a recreation. So, Americans were really turning it into uh, an occupation. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. were, they were serious about it. But uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that's one of the big fights uh, that uh, occurred. You know, Johnny McDermott is the one in, in 1913. Uh, well, actually, uh, the, the first uh, Open that, that Francis We Met won. He was the one who said, you guys think you're going to come over and win our Open? Well, I got news for you. You know, he was—he was about as rude as you could get. Was Hagen right? And that was true. Yeah, right? it was. Hey, yeah, no, no, it was Johnny McDermott is the one who. Uh, yes. no, no, uh, no, no, who no,
1: spouted no. off? You know, but was Hagen right when was, he said that the Brits were lazy?
0: No, um, uh, I I think that uh, the Americans uh, were uh, very keen on putting. Uh. And you know the our greens were probably better than theirs at that time, you know the ones that we played on we had you know pretty pretty darn good greens, and the putting really made the difference mm-hmm.
2: you know still they, still were, out, they were
0: they were taking it? they were taking thirty 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 two putts whatever you know mm-hmm. we were taking twenty three twenty four putts mm-hmm. That, that will do a lot of damage. Oh, yeah.
2: It will. <laughs> will Especially be. over the course of four rounds. Yeah, man, who can putt is a yeah. for and if
0: you look at, And if you look at who won, you know, uh, of course, Hagen won in uh, 22, 24, 28, and 29. And he was one of the best putters ever. Uh, and you look at uh, Denny Shute, jumped in there. Jock Hutchison was 21. He was terrific putter. Mm-hmm. Hutchison won it, you know, at St. Andrews in 21. So... Uh, so I think maybe you know Willie Park was right. A man who can putt is a match that's for anyone. Match for anyone. What is this? What's the state of the game? That's true today too. Well, of by course, the way, that's we're, Look what we're today. today.
1: and and yet, of course, all of us as golfers, sit, including some of some of the very best professionals, fall for the trap, don't we? We just feel like if we hit it better, we'd score better. <laughs> and those who figure out the importance of putting are the ones who are ultimately successful, aren't they? We all fall for the the lure of the sexy golf shot, when
0: really the real business happens at the other end of the hole, doesn't it? And that's probably always going to well, be the
1: case, I suspect.
0: Walt, Walter Higgins said it best when he said three of those and one of those is still four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good.
2: So good. Yeah. One of my favourites. Great
0: line. What's the state of the game around that,
1: that 14-year period of Jones? Is he driving interest in it worldwide? Is there a disparity between the popularity of the game on either side of the pond? Is there? What's the state of sort of golf more generally? Uh, at this time.
0: Well, you uh, uh you know, uh of course bob is uh graduating 1922 from Georgia Tech, degree in mechanical engineering. You know, then then he goes to Harvard in 24 and gets a degree in uh English literature. And then uh 25 26 uh he's down in Florida at Whitfield Estates playing against Walter Hagan. Uh, In Great Britain, they had the Great Depression. They had the Great Strike. Remember, it was uh, everybody uh, uh, went on strike. And uh, when the Americans went over in '26, uh, they were scared to death. They were going to have to cancel all the matches. Right. And finally, saved them. You know. But uh, uh, Florida, of course, went into a, a terrible depression in '26 as well. Uh, and then you go you go twenty seven, eight, nine, and then you got the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So imagine uh, you know uh, the economy was not very hospitable for uh, golfers. Uh, how many golf courses did you have? You had 50, around fifty golf courses, maybe right after the turn of the century. You know, uh, 1895. You know, the USGA was what? There were maybe forty forty golf courses when they when they uh, organized the USGA in, in 1895.
1: So, so it's a game that's kind of, I suppose, it's somewhat in danger. I'd imagine it was a fairly, it was a somewhat wealthy pursuit in the US, wasn't it? Uh, it was a, a country club. Game,
0: yeah, in Great in Great Britain, you know, it was the the artists and the artisans. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the shopkeepers. Uh, the golf courses belonged to the city, mm-hmm. just like St Andrews. Uh, you know, they were not private clubs like America. America grew up with uh, all of the wealthy people who played golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you had Shinnecock, you had the ones on uh, Long Island, as I like to say it. Uh, you know the the main golf. Clubs uh, are still the most prestigious today. Yeah. You know the old ones, yeah, um, and so it's a rich man's game in America. In in Britain and Scotland, it's still uh, the common man's game. Yeah, it remains yeah, you, know, you know, you closed your shop at five and you went out and you played nine holes. Yeah, that was just standard.
1: Yeah. One of Connor's hypotheticals for you: without Jones, does the game in America suffer somewhat more, perhaps? Does he maintain interest in the game in the U.S., I guess, as we head into
0: it? Well, you know, uh, to sort of of tie the thought together, um, with everybody in a soup line and begging for work, uh, you know, America needed a hero. Mm -hmm. They needed somebody who, uh, you you know, like uh, uh, steeple, Steeple Chase Kelly, you know, climbing a flagpole. Uh, the people, uh, Admiral Byrd going to the North pole, uh, Lindbergh flying to Paris. Uh, we needed heroes. We needed uh, somebody to take us out of our misery and give us uh, an idea that, you know, there was hope. Mm -hmm. And of course that, that really was one of the reasons why people jumped on Jones's bandwagon was that here's this, you know, clean cut kid. Uh, you know, got the world by the tail. He's the greatest, you know, he's a world beater. Um, uh, you know, I can live vicariously through him. Mm-hmm. That was one of the pieces of magic that worked, uh, you know, back in, in the depression days. Yeah.
2: You know, the, the other right. side to that too is the, uh, the unsung heroes here are the hero makers. The Grantland Rice is mm-hmm. the Obi Keelers, the Bob Harlow's who
0: told their stories, right? I mean, well, where would he be OB without Keeler, those You know, Jones, writers? yeah, j- You're right. Jones said, you know, I wouldn't be half the man that I am if OB wasn't there to travel 150,000 miles with me to tell the story. Yeah, Nobody would know the story.
2: And sometimes B, I mean, they didn't have it back then, but almost like his mental coach. I mean, he's the guy who's saying, this is your tournament. You know, the only person in your way is you. Paraphrasing, but essentially, you're the best player in the field. Win it.
0: Yeah, I, I hypothesized that he was really the first golf psychologist mm-hmm. um, uh, and, you know, was there uh, around the clock, really. Yeah. Uh, brilliant, brilliant fellow. And Jones was brilliant, you know. So here you got two smart guys together and, uh, of course, you know, Hagen uh, was the first one to become a golf professional. You know, he, he disaffiliated from any club and made his money with exhibitions. He yeah. played two or three exhibitions a day. And, you know, when you got somebody like Bob Harlow going around with suitcases of money, Oh yeah. They, they put them, they dumped them into banks where they didn't even know. They didn't even remember where they put them. Yeah. They'd go into it, go into a town and you know, they'd make a suitcase full of money and they'd go deposit it and then forget where it was. Yeah. J- Hagan. Uh, again, I can't wait to read your book when you read it, when you
2: write it, but I love the fact. A lot of people don't know this. When Hagen would do one of his his uh, outings, right, one of his uh, you know exhibitions, he would often make more money in that one exhibition than he would winning the U.S. Open, and surely more than the hundred pounds you got for winning the Open Championship.
0: Mm. Well, and you know you can even go to 1934 when they uh, had the first uh, uh, Augusta National Invitation Tournament. Absolutely. Uh, the entire purse was 5,000 and the gate didn't raise it. Oh. So they had to go over to Alfred Severn born, the singer sewing machine magnate. And he had to spring for the, for the uh, purse. I did not know they, that story. Huh. Yeah. Because they, they, they didn't bring it in with the gate. Uh, you know, they, they were, uh, uh pretty brazen to build the golf course in the middle of a depression, you know, Yes. So it just cost 100000 It really went to $125. And uh, Alfred Severborn said if the Depression had not uh, wiped me out, I could have uh, underwritten the entire uh, golf course construction. But of course, it nailed him, too. Yeah.
2: I, I tell you what, let's, I know we're going to do, and Sid, if you want to, of course, I'm going to ask you regardless, and I'll probably stalk you if you say no to coming back on an, uh, a podcast, because I, I think there's so much to dive into, but I think since you mentioned uh, Augusta National, maybe we should jump into that, and then we'll see how long we go, because I think we could do a full podcast on the greatness of Bobby Jones as a player, and I, I don't think a lot of people know the, about the early days of Augusta National and what it took to jump in. What do you think, Rod?
1: Oh let's let let's go there. Of course, Jones's legacy as a player is unquestionable, isn't it, Sid? I think oh. there's almost two Joneses, isn't there? Because his other legacy is of course Augusta National, and then the follow on to that is this annual tournament which we're about to see unfold, which has taken an extraordinary place in golf. Interestingly, Sid, this might be the controversial part of Jones's life, would that be fair to say? That that this is the Augusta National is the place where we start to see people raising some questions about Jones and what unfolded there and in particular on Twitter we asked for some questions and of course all the questions we got about why McKenzie wasn't paid for Augusta National
0: and the work that he did there well uh, uh, you know uh, Ray Haddock is uh, McKenzie's great grand nephew Uh, and he was the one who uh, found the manuscript that McKenzie wrote in 1930 yeah uh, uh, the spirit of St. Andrews. Spirit of Andrews yeah. and he was the one who found the letter hmm. and, and, you know, the letter was a letter from, uh, uh, from Alistair McKenzie to Cliff Roberts. And it said, uh, dear Cliff, you know, the, the depression has really hit hard here in California. I'm down to my last hundred dollars and I've sold my golf clubs Yeah. and Cliff wrote it back and he said, We'll be glad that you got your hundred dollars. And, huh. uh, you know, he said uh, we can't make uh, an, a payment uh, on or an advance toward your uh, uh, golf design fees because we're broker than you are. Um, so, and the fact is that he never did get paid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 there were a lot of other people who didn't either. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to reorganize the thing a couple of times, uh, and uh, during one of the or- reorganizations. Uh, now these are not bankruptcies; they're reorganizations, which is kind of uh, kind of interesting. But uh, you will see on the engraved stock certificates for the reorganized Augusta National, uh, there are women sitting on the split pine log benches. Huh? And the answer, that. and the answer is that there were several very wealthy uh, uh, women in Augusta who bought the bonds to keep the thing afloat. Wow. How about that? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Were
1: they members in that case having bought the bonds?
0: No, no, no. But, um, but you know, women have played Augusta ever since uh, its inception. Uh, you know, Alistair McKenzie was ill uh, in 1934 right before the – he never saw the golf course sodded in. It was there was no grass on it uh, when he saw it, but he sent Marion Hollins as his emissary to uh, Augusta to uh, follow through on the detail to make sure that all of his details had been followed through. Mm -hmm. And that goes to show you, you know, the respect that he had for her, Mm -hmm. you know, not only as a player, but she also, uh, you know, uh, funded uh, Pasatiempo. Mm-hmm. right uh, also uh, the, she what, the she, she won the she she bought the the land that the kettleman oil fortune came in she bought several tracts of land and the oil came in on the kettleman ranch mm-hmm. and she was multi multi millionaire during the depression mm-hmm. and of course was able to build pasatempo with it and uh but but and also a terrific golfer you know mm-hmm. She she's one that uh, uh, could hit uh, the shot on at Cypress Point on sixteen. Mm-hmm. Right, she could she could drive that green. Hmm.
1: Just to just to go back, how does the relationship fall between Jones and Roberts and Roberts? Obviously is you know an extraordinarily large part of the history of Augusta National. And what was that relationship like? and what's Jones's role in these turbulent times where the club <laughs> owes money to a lot of people as you said, and many didn't get paid Mackenzie and good. What's Jones's role? Do we know what his feelings were about? Some well of, of
0: course bob Bob wanted uh, a national golf course. Uh, he wanted members from all over the country um, you know he wanted he wanted a sanctuary he wanted uh, he was tired of playing in front of all the crowds and uh he wasn't able to throw golf clubs which he loved to do even <laughs> even <laughs> even after he would not do it in competition or in public but he said i i did get uh, quite a bit of enjoyment of uh, uh, throwing uh, golf clubs at uh, you know during my, uh, my sanctuary days, uh, but after <laughs> they started making them with steel shafts, I couldn't break them as easy. <laughs> love it, love it. I, but, one of my but, favorite. Uh, but here's I'm sorry,
2: yeah, no, you're I was just gonna say one of my favorite quotes of Bob Jones, referring back to his career, is referring to tournament play as like playing in a cage. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a quote something similar to that? So having that that sanctuary to disappear into, to be able to throw your clubs if you want to, it really resonates with that kind of thought. Because he he was stressed. He was stressed, deeply stressed, in playing tournament golf. Go, well,
0: and once again, he didn't play mano a mano, dog-eat-dog dog against his opponent, uh, uh, which made it a little bit harder. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he was able to internalize a lot of the stress, but, you know, it, it would get to him... Uh, a lot of his friends were betting on him yeah. and it drove him crazy because, you know, he hated to see them lose if he lost, they lost. And, you know, he felt bad about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, he, he was so stressed out toward 2930 that, uh, you know, he, he knew that he was going to have to quit. Yeah. And the question was, uh, what is my exit strategy? And uh, believe it or not, he actually conceived the notion uh, that any mathematical race toward the highest total of uh, golf victories was, was doomed to failure. Because there would always be somebody who came along and, and lopped on another uh, trophy. Uh, and, and so he came up with the notion of winning uh, all of the major championships on both sides of the pond, you know, the so-called Grand Slam and uh, he he did he achieved half of it in 1926 you know he won the double which was the open at Skokie and and uh, and the uh, uh, open uh, in roll rhythm uh, and he figured you know what I think I can win all four in one year but he only went over and you know 27 was a flute because he he played you know so miserably in the open that he was mad and uh, he he got in just under the wire, I think it was one day, uh, before the entries closed, went over and, and won at St. Andrews. But um, he didn't come back until 1930, so he only had three shots at it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. One out of three wins all yeah. four championships, so that, that's a pretty good record, too. We
2: were jumping into Augusta National, but let me ask you this question. If Jones fails to win... The, the impregnable quadrilateral, or the, the Grand Slam as we know it today. If he fails to win it in 1930, does he play in 1931? What are your thoughts on that? Question. I mean, I don't know if he's ever commented on it, but I'm, I'm curious if, you, if you've ever read anything.
0: Well, this is interesting because, uh, you know, right after... Uh, a, good, a good case can be made that he was done. Yeah. Uh, except... The very next year, he was offered to be pl- to play in the Open. Now, he's given up his amateur status. He, right. in, in October, uh, uh, Jack Warner paid him $103,000 to do the Warner Brothers uh, movies. So now, he is declared a non-amateur. But yet, he is invited to play in the Open, and the question was, is he going to play as an amateur, or is he going to play as a professional? Yeah. And he was, he was determined that he had retired. And so he was done. He so was we only playing an, ceremonial golf.
2: We don't have an answer to that, do we? From the USJ or, I mean, do we know what, what would have been acceptable for them if he was professional or amateur? Is there, you, you get where I'm going with that? I, I'm just well, curious. I my, mean, what was my, their
0: well, my, the, well I, I, think, I think there is an answer to that. And it is uh, at mm-hmm. uh the third leg of the Grand Slam, uh, O.B. Keeler comes out of the shower. He's got a towel around him. He's got a highball in his hand. Oh, nice. <laughs> and one of the sports writers said, O.B., is Bob going to retire? What are you going to do? And Bob's there. And they're mm-hmm. saying, Bob, are you going to retire? Are you going to quit? And he said, O.B., you tell him, you know. <laughs> and so O.B. said... Uh, Well, uh, Hillary Bullock said it best. If I ever become a rich man or if I ever grow to be old, I'll build myself a deep thatch roof to shelter me from the cold. I'll have my house on a high wood within a short walk of the sea. And the men who were boys when I was a boy shall sit and drink with me. And that that was his answer.
2: (laughs) That clears it all up, doesn't it? Mm.
0: I I think he's done. I think after Marion, He's done. Yeah. And and uh you know he wanted to go home, take care of his uh, family. Uh he wanted uh he wanted to do the deal with uh with Jack uh Warner. Uh he wanted to write five books, he wanted to build the world's wonder inland golf course. He wanted to develop the most technologically advanced golf clubs then known. Uh, which included putting the center of gravity in the sweet spot throughout the set which had never been done you know and and uh developed uh, matched sets uh he was the one who did the the D De deal where you yeah. got the same yeah. same yeah. height of clubs you know he was the one who did that first i don't yeah. know if D knows that but uh and his and work, you know his, his, there's a great yeah, he, story behind that by the way uh in yeah, 1929, he's playing golf with uh, Bill Nye of the FBI and Grover Whalen, chief of police of uh, New York. And they went to Denny Moore's for dinner and came back to Jack's flat to play cards. And Jones's clubs were stolen out of the boot of his car. So, uh, you know, the FBI guy and the police chief put the word out on the street Hey, boys, we know you stole his clubs and uh, we're going to crack down on you guys if you don't turn them loose. Two days later, they show up in a pawn shop. Oh. So he gets his clubs back and he goes over to old Tom Stewart in St. Andrews and has them copied so that, you know, he had a special set. And that's where the idea of registering your clubs with Spalding so that if they were ever broken or stolen, you'd be able to just call. Uh, uh you know oh. Jimmy Long, and he'd send you a new set i'd have the spa but that I was did, that was part of Jones's Genius. I yeah. did not know that I know his work yeah. with J.
2: Victor East at Spalding i mean it literally changed the way sets are purchased today, where the sweet spot is, how they played, and like you said that the idea of having the the one length club was just i mean it was it was nether level at that point. it was one of the best selling sets of all time they sold in both steel and hickory shafts. Um, and at one point, up until recently, I had a hickory shafted one that was all matched and made the mistake of letting somebody have it who never gave it back. Oh, so. oh there, you
0: go. <laughs> there you go. Now, uh, to get back to your, to, to tie back in to Cliff yeah. and, and Bob, yeah. you know, you had an extraordinary relationship. You know, Cliff is uh, uh, Reynolds and Company. Um, and uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, former partners, uh, is still with us. Uh, Bill will, uh, Bill Williamson. He's from, uh, Charlotte and Bill was a partner of Cliff Roberts in the Reynolds and company. How about that? Mm-hmm. I, so yeah. I pulled him aside at, uh, Biltmore forest. We have a very Tony tournament called the sweetser named after Jeff sweetser. He was a member of Biltmore forest. So very, uh, high, uh, brow, uh, amateur tournament, uh, and I asked Bill Will uh tell me about tell me about Mr. Roberts is what we refer to him as. And he said, "Well, you know, Cliff was uh he he was very much about uh 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 famous people. He was enamored with famous people. Eisenhower was, you know, uh, one of his captured uh, audiences and he became his investment banker and uh and uh But Cliff was all about, you know, I know Bobby Jones. Uh, uh, One of the stories I like to tell is Bob only made two holes in one. Uh, One of them was at the uh, 14th hole at Augusta Country Club. And on the plaque is on the spot, Bob Jones uh, made a hole in one. And uh, Alfred Severn Bourne and Fielding Wallace and uh, I think Bourne's son are on the uh, plaque but if you read Cliff Roberts' book, uh, you know, Augusta National, it says, how well, I remember when Bob made his hole-in-one at, a, at the Augusta Country Club. Oh, okay. uh, he, he used a six iron. I remember I used a seven iron. Oh. So I, Eileen Stolb wrote the history of uh, Augusta Country Club, and I said, Eileen, uh, what's up with the disparity between the plaque and Cliff's book? And she said, Cliff wasn't there. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? She said Cliff wasn't there. I said, "Well, it's right in his book. Are you going to go with his book or the plaque?" I, she said, "Sydney, Cliff wasn't there." So it gives you a pretty good idea, you know. The when they they had a little uh, group called Joe Roberts that uh, invested in Coca Cola plants uh, in South America. It's about forty members of the of the club uh, of the national. And they got their financial ox in the ditch, uh, you know, with the with the downturn, and they needed to borrow some money, so uh, Mr. Roberts uh, uh, arranged for Bob to go to uh, New York and talk to Doug Smith, one of the bankers at Citibank. And they decided to play uh, nine holes at Blind Brook, and so Doug Smith's a young banker. And he's going, I can't believe it. I'm going to meet Bobby Jones. I'm going to play golf with him at Blind Brook. This is unbelievable. So they played nine holes. And Bob said, would you would you like to come in to the clubhouse for a libation? And so they go in the, the locker room and have a drink. And they get the deal right. And then Bob says, I just have to run this by Cliff. And so they bring a phone in. And Bob's got to hold the phone six inches away from his ear. And <laughs> Uh Doug can hear on the other line, No, we're not doing that. Hell oh, right. no, oh, we're not doing that. No, 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 no. And love and it. Doug was mortified. And so when Bob hung up, he didn't want to give it away and he said, Well, what did Mr. Roberts say? And Jones said, Cliff said that'd be fine.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. Love <laughs> called, it. Isn't it. You know, that'd they were they were
0: on they were they were on a trip to uh, South America and Bob had to buy a ticket for his golf clubs for one seat. <laughs> And uh, finally Spalding gave him a set of clubs and said, why don't you just keep them down there instead of flying them back and forth? It'll save you a ticket. But they the Morton Hodgson was R.W. Woodruff of Coca-Cola's nephew and he ran the coke plants uh, down in in Paraguay, Uruguay, and and Argentina. And so they they went down to check on the properties and they got on the elevator and then a foreign national got on the elevator and And uh, Morton Hodgson spoke fluent Spanish, and he said, Buenos Dias. Bob Jones did not speak Spanish, and he said, (laughs) Buenos Dias. Cliff said nothing. So (laughs) when they got off the elevator and the guy walked away, uh, Bob uh, went nose to nose with Cliff, and he said, Cliff, that was rude. He said, you know I don't speak Spanish, and Morton said, Buenos Dias, and I don't speak Spanish, and at least I said, Buenos Dias. The least you could do is say, Buenos Dias. And Cliff pushed him back, and he goes, Bob, you're right. He said, I don't speak Spanish. And if I said Buenos Dias to that man, he would have assumed that I spoke fluent Spanish and he would have responded in Spanish. I then would have not been able to respond to him. I would have created an international incident. So hell no, I'm not saying Buenos Dias. <laughs> it
1: oh, it, it seems, it,
0: you, you obviously know more about Jones than
1: any of us. It, it seems with my limited knowledge an incongruous relationship. Uh, oh, people often paint it as a good cop, bad cop thing. Roberts and Jones. It feels like that from now. Is that is that true and fair? Was Jones? Well, how did they? How did he get tied up it? it Doesn't seem from the outside like the sort of person that Jones would be attracted to,
0: or drawn to. Well, uh, well, Bob. Bob did not believe in opening your briefcase at the club at Augusta. Um. So you know, I think there was, but and Cliff was. You know, he was a financial guy. He's
1: a hard nosed so, business person, wasn't he? And quite a hard nosed man for well, the reports.
0: Well and, and of course, you know, uh he uh he had a hard scrabble life. He was a hard scrabble guy. Uh and I think Bob was a little more genteel. I think he was uh he was more comfortable in his own skin. And you know here cliff has built uh, uh this club uh originally they were uh, in such dire straits that they needed to to have some magic uh so they went to the usga and said uh, we'd like to have a u.s open they had never had a u.s open south of the smith and wesson line none so uh they got turned down and that's when cliff said well uh uh, he was talking with Grantland Rice, and they said, well, why don't we just have, you know, a tournament that'll be Bob Jones and friends? And uh, Grantland Rice said, you know, all of my boys will be down reporting on the, the Grapefruit League, the baseball yeah. uh, places down in Florida uh, for the winter. And I'll persuade them to stop by Augusta to to report on the tournament if you have one. And that's what they did. Uh, And that's how, you know, that whole thing got started. You know, Bob did not think that it was uh, uh, proper to to call it the Masters. He thought that was presumptuous, you know, until 1939 when he said, well, it looks like uh, it it deserves to be called the Masters because it has continued to assemble those who are uh, entitled to be called the Masters of the game. So, uh, you know, Cliff, Cliff really took ownership of that and... Uh, you know, took off with it. Uh, uh, and Bob, you know, he was the one who was entertaining everybody. Uh, Herbert Warren Wynn used to say, the greatest joy in my year was to go to the Bob Jones cabin to see Bob. He said, we'd go into the cabin and there's Francis, Bob Jones III's wife, and she would be the hostess. And... Bob would say, "Uh, Herb, uh, would you like something to drink? And he said, well, what are you having? And Bob said, I think I'll have a Coke. And Herb said, well, I think I'll have a Coke. And Bob said, well, would you like it in a glass or a bottle? And Herb said, well, my mama raised me right. And I said, well, I'll have it in a glass. And so Bob said, Francis, we'll have two Cokes, one in a glass. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Love it. Love it. Let, and, let me and, you ask know, you, yeah, and that
0: goes say. to show you how um, how loose Bob was and how uh, humor was very close to the surface with him uh, you know uh, with Cliff less so uh, you know his his humor was a little more uh, uh, well uh, <laughs> it, it, it was maybe it, 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 I think I it was say, it was yeah it's very it's very hard to uh, compare the two because one is a much more endearing personality and the other one didn't give a damn, give a damn. Yeah. W- w- were they friends do you think sid or was it a they were there was no question that they were friends bob, genuine bob, uh, bob, they were, uh, bob bob from bob they were bob bob respected uh cliff uh you know uh, completely uh, you know they they kind of got sideways uh Bob Jones the Fourth tells the story about how his uh uh father was a member of the club and was poised to be in line to become president you know when his when his father retired um uh, but when when uh Bob died, Cliff declared that he was president in perpetuity and <laughs> And so that prevented Bob Jones III from becoming president of the club. Yeah, cruel. And wow. And cool. Cliff then took the title of chairman. So, um, you know the, uh, and and he was you know, uh, I I understand that that Cliff wasn't invited to attend the funeral service, but that was supposed to be private for family only only anyway. Sure. And I don't think was intended to be a, a snub. Yeah. Um, but uh, and what about another him? another wonderful, wonderful uh, 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 a reflection of Bob's humor is uh, somewhat of an apocryphal story, but I think there's some truth to it. Uh, Sam Sneed, uh was a brash young uh, player coming on, and uh, uh, Corcoran was his manager. And he said, Sam, you know, uh, why don't you play barefoot up one and down nine? You know, because you're from you're a hillbilly from uh, uh, West Virginia, and so Sam took up he took the bet, and when Bob found out about it, he was livid Mm -hmm. because he thought it was disrespectful. Right. And later, a uh, a reporter asked Bob, uh, Bob, I hear that if if Sam Snead was on fire. Uh, you would not walk across the street and uh, and put it out uh, by making water, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Bob Jones said that's incorrect.
1: I'm now a bit lost. What do you mean by?
0: Well, uh, if if he was saying that uh, you, he would not put the fire out, and Bob Jones was saying that's incorrect, I would have. Right. I I would have put the fire out.
2: Right. <laughs> By making water on him.
0: By making water. Right, understood.
1: <laughs> now I think I get it. I think it, that bias yeah. me. I want to go back. So, you know, I am intrigued by the notion, of, do we know how Jones felt about the financial issues of the club and the issues with Mackenzie? Did he have a right or speak about? Because Robert's obviously dealt with, he's the one that's dealing with the correspondence. Um, we know that from the, as you say, the letter that was found, et cetera, et cetera. Do we know how Jones felt about any of that? You, you, you can't
0: well, but you know, Bob Bob wanted that? to pay the bills and they're you know, they're in terrible straits. Uh they've gone through a couple of reorganizations. Mm-hmm. Uh golf courses are closing left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh there is no guarantee that this is going to be a viable venture. And then McKenzie dies. Yeah. January nineteenth. So thirty four. Yeah. yeah. So thirty four. He dies. And so, you know, uh, there's the you know the, the bill is thrown in the pile and they never get around to it and bob you know uh, any uh uh concern that he had to get mckenzie paid is kind of you know put on the back burner and forgotten about
2: you have to so, have the money
0: to pay him right yeah, well you you know you got to pay your bills and he was yeah. Uh, he He made sure that everybody paid their bill when they came to the club, and Cliff yeah. certainly did mm-hmm. you know but um, but i think I think yeah, it was of concern to Bob, but uh there was not much that he could do. I guess he could pay it out of his own pocket, and he might might should have because his own personal circumstances both he and Roberts were in their own rights reasonably wealthy,
1: were they not independent of the club.
0: Yeah, Bob. Bob, uh, you know, once again, he made one hundred three thousand dollars October nineteen thirty from Jack Warner, and that's like a million bucks. Yeah, that was. That, and then he, you know, two years later, they did another uh, uh, six reels. Uh, you know, how to break ninety. Mm-hmm. Uh, first one was how I play golf, and then uh, that was twelve reels. And the second in nineteen thirty three was uh, how uh, how to break ninety. And of course, he got he got paid handsomely for that as well. But you know, Bob was a rainmaker at his firm. You know, he had R. W. Woodruff of Coca Cola, Harry Atkinson of Georgia Power. He had uh, you know steel mills. He had you know the Jones uh, town. The town of Canton was owned by Bob's grandfather, R. T. Jones, and he owned all of the cotton fields. You pick Mister Jones's cotton. You took it to his uh, cotton gin. Yeah, they ginned it into uh, 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 denim. Uh, took it to the to the Jones uh, Mercantile uh, Company. You took your money to, to Mr. Jones's bank, and he was forty years the Sunday School superintendent at the Canton Baptist Church. So, you know, in 1925, he grossed $1. 1.5 million dollars. Wow! Which was almost unheard of. Mm. Unreal. And, and then when the Depression hit, he went to the banks in uh, Atlanta, uh, and he said, I need to borrow enough money to keep everybody on my entire employment and because uh, I don't want to fire anybody. And they said, well, you know, you're not viable anymore. You're not making any, any money. You know, we can't loan you the money. He said, gentlemen, uh, I will never do business with you again. And he went to New York and got the money. He built uh, a warehouse, uh, continued to, to manufacture denim, and then when the war broke out, he sold it to the Army at a fortune. Yeah, wow. Brilliant. So, so that's the ethic, you know, that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Jones was never declared a professional, obviously, because he retired. As you say, there was that sort of period where they weren't sure whether he was going to play the Open, and if he did, would he be professional? Uh-huh. Uh, are there any other... I've, I've read – now, who raised this, Connor? Somebody raised this with us. Was there an issue about Jones helping to sell real estate prior to his retirement where some might think it that, would that be yeah, engaging in professional activity?
2: The question came up, yeah, the question came up on, in 1926 that? at Whitfield Estates. It was Whitfield. Bill Williams. Yep. Um, and, the, and the question was, do we know what – I think the question was two-part, is what was Jones' role at Whitfield Estates? Uh, which was a, a dare, an Adair property. And I guess the second part of that is, you know, if he's selling real estate and playing golf in the process, could that have been considered a violation of his amateur status?
0: Well, that's a, the, you know, that is a, a good question. Uh, I, I've just written a piece called The Gifted Bob Jones. And it, and it deals with the town of Sarasota giving Bob Jones a brand new Pierce Arrow automobile. Yeah. Okay. Now, this created a big furor with the USGA because the amateur rule at that time was that if you made money from your playing golf, uh, you were a non-amateur and, and you had to take up professional status. Right, he met, uh, lost
2: his status just because he owned a sporting goods store that sold, sold golf, golf clubs. clubs. That's right,
0: yeah. <laughs> unreal. That's right. Uh, we met in Sullivan, and yeah. Harvey Ward. Harvey Ward worked for Absolutely. Eddie Lowry, uh, selling Cadillac fleets. And you know, when Eddie got into tax trouble, uh, he he uh, he had to tell the uh, the tax uh, investigators that he was paying. Venturi yep. and and uh, and Ward, uh, big salaries uh, for playing golf with everybody to sell fleets. Yeah. So that that cost Harvey, you know, uh, probably part of his uh, legacy, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. But in in twenty six, you know, George Washington Adair built uh, Druid Hills. Uh, he did a bunch of uh, uh, developments in Atlanta, and he got into the Florida craze. Uh, and bought uh, several thousand acres in Whitfield Estates. Uh, Bob was sent down there to sell lots uh, with uh, Jack Adair, uh, and he roomed with a guy named uh, uh, Tommy Armour. Yeah, who was and, head from, right? he was the first head professional, and they teamed up and went around on the Florida tour. They had matches all throughout Florida and took on all comers and beat them all. It was awesome. And then, of course, uh, he won the uh, British uh, Open at Royal Rhythm and St. Anne's. So he was the champion of Great Britain. And uh, Hagen won the PGA. So he was the champion of uh, America. So that's when they uh, had uh, the match of the century. At Whitfield Estates in Pasadena, uh, now uh, Hagen took the gate, which was six to eight thousand dollars, and and uh, he ended up he ended up giving uh, Bob uh, gold and diamond encrusted uh, cufflinks, mm-hmm. which also raised an eyebrow. So I say he was the gifted Bob Jones. He got away with a Pierce Arrow automobile. <laughs> he got he got cufflinks. Uh, I want to say Capital City gave him a three carat diamond ring. Uh, he he had gifts out the wazoo, yeah. and and uh, Jack Wheeler of the Bell Syndicate uh, had a uh, weekly uh, column that Bob wrote and paid him two hundred dollars a week for it.
2: Right, uh, right.
0: Now, Bob, get this. Bob is on the executive committee of the USGA. Exactly. <laughs> around this time.
2: Exactly. Right.
0: And who? And, and, and who else? And who else is on there? Melvin Trailer, a member of Augusta National, who is uh, uh, chairman of the uh, First National Bank of Chicago, and M. H. Ilesworth, who is a uh, also a member of Augusta. Uh, you know, who is? Uh, 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 it was in either NBC. I think it was NBC. How about that?
2: Yeah. So he's Well, you know, what I find interesting about that is the, the hubbub where the, the friends of Bob Jones uh, offered to buy him uh, a house, $50,000, uh, I believe, was for the house. And initially, the USGA gave it the green light. And then, essentially, the press got a hold of it, and it was Bob Jones who turned down the offer, even though he had the blessing from the USGA. And it was like... <laughs> They gifted Bob Jones right there, right?
0: Yeah, and there's a post. There's a postscript to that. We actually have a letter that Bob Jones wrote in his own handwriting to his grandfather, right. R.T. R.T. the guy who owned Canton, Georgia. Right. And the, the letter says, uh, "Dear Grandpa, uh, thank you for offering to loan me the fifty thousand dollars that that I have rejected." Uh, at no interest, uh, but it's about time that I stood on both of my legs as a man, and so I'm I'm respectfully declining your kind offer. Signed, so even, wow, Bob Jones. How about so that? Af-
2: so after his friends offered to buy him the house, his grandfather says, "You know what? I'll take it." And Bob says, "No, no, no it's my turn, right?" That's right. That's right. Wow. And we have, and we have that
0: and we have that letter in Bob Jones' handwriting. Wow.
2: Do, do you have right. any, and, and I'm asking because I'm also friends with uh, Gary Cole, who is the historian at Sarah Bay, which, was, of course, was Whitfield State's. I know, not to go off on a totally different tangent, but I know that your collection on Bob Jones was and is vast, and I know you donated quite a bit of it to, I think, Emory and Atlanta, uh, uh, the Atlanta uh, uh, Athletic Club. Club. Yes. Do you have anything on Whitfield Estates in those two collections that you're that you can remember? Uh
0: well, as a matter of fact, uh I have a uh uh archive of photographs of the the uh, match of the century uh that uh were taken by three different photographers who were oh. there. And uh uh so they, you know, uh, one one of them was taken on Roloflex. I think another one uh, was taken on um, uh, proper camera. But the the photographs are are magnificent. Uh, and there was uh, there were two or three uh, people that I interviewed uh, who actually were there and saw yeah. the tournament. Wow! Saw the saw the matches. Uh, and, and of course, you know, they were able to 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 uh, talk about it. One of them uh, told me the story of uh, Hagen pulling up to the Sereno Hotel, uh, which was a real big uh, outfit back then, you know. It was like Don Cesar, you know, today. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Right. And uh, he pulled up, and the uh, dining room was on the second floor. And the owner was up there having lunch, and up comes this giant car, and out comes the chauffeur, and the owner phoned down to Harmon Hagenbuckle, who was, the, who was the manager. And he said, Harmon, Hagen just showed up, and he said, uh, tell him that we don't have any rooms, because he'll take over the entire place, and I'll, I'll lose all my customers. Oh, funny. So we need to get rid of him. So get rid of him. And so in comes the chauffeur, out goes the chauffeur. In comes Hagen. Uh-oh. What do you mean? What do you mean, kid? You don't have any rooms. He said, really, Mr. Hagen? He said, it's so bad that that I've even given up my own room. And he said, that's it, kid. He said, pack your bags. You're coming with me. I'll find you a room. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so Harmon called up the owner, and he says, Hagen wants me to leave with him right now. He'll find me a room. He said, "Do it. If he finds out we lied to him, he'll ruin me." <laughs> so Harmon said, "We went down this. We went down the street to another hotel. I know it was this guy maybe." And oh, uh, he, he said, did. "I stayed for the I stayed for the entire week," and he said, "We had a ball. It was unbelievable. Hagen uh, held court. It was a who's who. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I think I've got him on film telling this story, but it's a beauty.
1: That's fantastic." Oh.
0: And what a and again, what an amazing name! Did you say Harmon Hagenbuckle? Ro- Harmon Hagenbuckle, yeah, just amazing. But uh, there's another guy, uh, uh, Ed Rogers, who was the golf pro at St. Leo College. You know, over over uh, near uh, Dade City. Yeah, uh, and he was also up at. Uh, uh, f- uh, Port Orange and Jacksonville, they had a golf course up there. It's no one of your no longer existing golf courses. Yeah, and uh, he was the pro there, and he said uh, I saw the matches at uh, Pasadena and Whitfield, uh, and and told me you know uh, uh, how incredible it was. I think Jones had something like thirty-two putts, and Walter had. 25? Wow.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was all the putter. It was all putting.
2: Yeah, it was uh, Hagan. I think, well, I know this. He won 72-hole match. It was 12-11 and 11 win. And I think Jones called it the most r- remarkable beating of my career. But then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Sid. I think he used it to repurpose himself for the year. And Was it? A, I can't remember. Was it a balance? It was something... Relatively simple in his swing, that he discovered after the match, that put him on a path for 1926, which was virtually unde- un- he was indestructible. I, I well, maybe it was the ball. It might have been ball position again.
0: Your the ball was creeping back in his stance. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, that's crazy. Let, let, that, let me ask you. Makes let let me ask
2: you. Let me ask you a question. Going back to Augusta. Um. Maybe we don't know this, but it sounds like from what you were talking about before, if not for the Great Depression, 1929, uh, we're in the 1930s. Augusta's under design in 1931. Uh, 1934, we have the first Augusta National Invitational. If not for the financial crisis, do we have the masters today? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, they were looking to raise the gate, raise profile, would it have happened if it weren't for the depression?
0: Well, I, I, I still think today that when you, uh, when you walk on that hallowed ground, Absolutely. Uh, you, will, you will run into someone who says how well I remember when Bob came up to us under the big tree. You know, here at Florida State, Don Veller was the golf coach. 1950, 1950 54 or 54 5 um, he he was invited to take the entire team up to be marshals at at the masters Fantastic. so he took the entire golf team uh, uh up to to be and jones sat under the big tree with the team and coach veller and talked about the rose bowl that georgia tech played that he went to uh in what
2: 25
0: yeah yeah okay and you know so everyone has a bob jones story how well i remember
2: yeah and and
0: i think really that that is uh it's getting it's getting less so if i go talk to a group i usually open with how many of you ever met bob jones how many who ever play who played golf with him and if nobody answers uh uh the question then I can say whatever I want. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, the wonderful thing about history. I, I
1: really like you,
0: Sid. Yeah, I do, too.
1: <laughs> I do too. Sid, let me ask
0: you something. Well, everybody has their moments, <laughs> you know. Oh, that's so that's good.
2: A, try, but what, and wait, before you jump in, okay. before you jump in, what do you, what do you think, though,
0: Sid? Do you think if we don't have the Great Depression, do we have the masters today? My, my, my point is that Bob Jones' hero as human being is what the Masters embodies. Absolutely. That it's not so much Bob Jones' hero as sportsman. You know, they, they made a movie uh, about Bob Jones. It was all about Bob Jones' hero as sportsman. Yeah. After he went the, the Grand Slam, it ended. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, story, the story is Bob Jones getting up out of the chair in oh. 1958 at St. Andrews at Younger Hall and scraping his feet over to the microphone to show respect to the people who are making him a citizen of the Royal Borough of St. Andrews and saying, if I could take out of my life all my experiences except those at St. Andrews, I'd still have a rich and full life. You know, to to, to have somebody who is throbbing with pain uh, with uh, uh, syringomyelia, which denuded uh, all of the sheaths of, of his nerves uh, and for him still uh, to have a smile on his face and to tell a story and and to say, "Don't talk about me, tell me what you've been doing you know uh, the 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 augusta reeks of the Bob Jones legacy even today, and I think uh, yes, uh, you still have uh, the people who wanted to rub shoulders with him, yeah, and they because he was. Uh, you know, he was a person that we'll never see the likes of again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: You know, I I know you probably never listened to the podcast, but uh, our opener actually uh, begins with his speech to uh, the Burg of St. Andrews. That's, it's, it's literally in our opener, because I think it's such, many people don't know the story like you just told it, but nobody even knew he could stand at that point, let alone walk over to give that. So when he stood, it was kind of a a salvo shocking. to
0: it was oh, a salvo was to the
2: to the southern gentleman that he was that he felt so compelled, and that energy of the crowd and the love of the crowd compelled him to stand and walk and give, you know, that speech which is so moving.
0: I get well, and, and 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 remember, uh, he left with his tail between his legs in twenty one. Yeah, uh, he he comes back and and vindicates himself at Rollitham and St Andrews in twenty six. And in 27, uh, comes back to win back-to-back at St. Andrews in 27. He then becomes our Bobby because yeah. he says, I'm not going to take the trophy uh, back to the United right. States with me. You know, they were raw because they didn't win the, the uh, trophy from 21 to 34 when Cotton got it. So imagine, you know, the Brits were, they were beside themselves and Jones is saying, I'm one of you. You know, he goes back in 36 uh, during the Olympics with, uh, with Grantland Rice and, and with R.W. Woodruff. And they stay at uh, Glen Eagles. And they say, well, you know, let, let's see if we can go play a place in Andrews while we're here. And they send a uh, chauffeur over to put their name in the ballot. And uh, so they show up for the ballot, and there's 3,000 people lining the fairways while they're having lunch. And they say, well, you know, I guess golf's out because they got a big tournament on, obviously. And it wasn't the entire town. It turned out because the word got out, Bobby's back. And so everybody in town closed their shops and came out and watched him play. And um, Henry Longhurst uh, talks about Burt Cochran. Uh, His name has never been printed. Burt Cochran is his name. I got it from the caddy master who knew him. He was Jones's caddy. And as Jones goes to the eighth hole, you know, to to make his third birdie, uh, Cochran, after he hits his his, uh, tee shot ten feet from the hole, Cochran just looks up and said, Aye, but you're a wonder, sir. Aye, but you're a wonder. And that was the name of Henry Longhurst's uh, article. But Henry says uh, the name of the caddy, uh, has disappeared into the mists of time. No, it hasn't. Rick McKenzie, the caddy master, told me, Sydney, his name is Burt Cochran, came from Trenent, right near Edinburgh. And I knew him. And he told me the the, the whole story. Wow. So, Bert, Bert Cochran, you're getting some good stuff here. That's go. some great stuff. I did not know that. I That's know. unreal. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, but it's a great story. Ah, but you're a wonder, sir. Isn't it? You know, and then he comes. then he comes back in 58... Uh, Charlie Harrison, who is still alive, he's eighty-seven. You know, he knew Bob Jones as well as anybody. He insured Bob going over to uh, to uh, uh, captain the World Amateur Team Championship, and sold him the insurance policy. And they lost an engine over Gander, Newfoundland. Ooh. He almost had to pay out, pay off on the policy. <laughs> oh but, wow! But, yeah, but he, but he, you know, he shows up. And the entire town, you know, embraced him. And uh, he said, uh, uh, it is a remarkable feeling walking about a foreign town and having people call you by your name, usually by your first name, and asking how you're doing. Wow. You know, know I mean, that's... Yeah. So when when you talk about uh, uniting two countries in Amity and Rivalry... Uh, you know, through one remarkable personality. Uh, I think that's your theme. Yeah. What a stroke of good fortune that they managed to get a spot
1: in the ballot that day in 1936. So can, <laughs> you, can you imagine if they'd missed out? What a disappointment that would have been for everybody
0: <laughs> if they hadn't get to yeah, see all, uh, play. Yeah, all all they put was uh, was R.W. Woodruff. Uh, uh, I think Morton Hodgson was with him. I think it was uh, M. Hodgson, uh, R.T. Jones, and, uh, matter of fact, I think it was only three, uh, Woodruff automatically said, I'm not play- I playing <laughs> I'm <gonna embarrass> <laughs> they had to get Laurie, They got, they got, uh, Laurie Octorlone and, um, I think, um, wasn't it, uh, Gordon, uh, Gordon Lockhart from, uh, Glen Eagles, I think maybe, uh, played with them, but you know, he, he went out in 32. Oh, wow. And came, came back came back and even, uh, you know, and uh, and then went to this fabulous uh, dinner. Uh, Herb Wynn tells the story about it when he was there with Billy Joe Patton. And when they walked out, he said, you know, uh, this one Scott rose and said, started singing, Will You No Come Back Again? And then the entire household, probably 2,000 people, stood up and started singing. And, of course, everybody had tears in their eyes because they knew that he never would come back again. Mm -hmm. And as as, uh, Herb and Billy Joe were walking down the street, uh, there was not a word said until finally Billy Joe said, he's the greatest Southerner who ever lived. Mm. Wow. And Herb just uh, Herb would bust up laughing. Yeah. He's the greatest. He's the greatest, he's the Southerner, greatest Southerner who ever lived. lived. Yeah, uh, right. of all things. I,
1: I want to take you back right. quickly. Said we we did an episode of the show which caused quite a bit of controversy amongst a small number of people about when did the majors become majors? And of course, uh, the Masters is part of the discussion. 1960 is what we settled on when Palmer said this would be the the, the modern Grand Slam tournaments: the PGA Masters, US and. And open championships. Where do you center those? Is 1934 the first Augusta Invitational? Is it a major? Uh, I,
0: I think it. I think you're probably talking about major status after the war, when when you had the modern triumvirate of Hogan, Sneed, Nelson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really you know Gene Sarazen uh, had the shot heard round the world in '35 when he hit the double eagle. And that, that is what drove the gate. Everybody wanted to see, hey, if, uh, if there's this kind of fireworks, we need to go see it. Right. But, then, but then you had the war, and they had cows uh, lunching on the greens during the war. Uh, but I think what really started it was the modern triumvirate of Hogan, Sneed, Nelson, because they were firecrackers, and they were you know trading titles yeah. back and forth. Uh, and then you have uh, TV. You know, fifty-eight, nine, sixty. You got TV. So that is an explosion of uh, uh, of excitement there. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think you know maybe those ought to be some considerations. Do we know Jones's own feelings on
1: the matter? Was he ever asked about? It? Did he ever talk about the status of the tournament where it sat amongst the biggest tournaments in the world?
0: Well, once again, it was 1939 that he uh, finally acquiesced and said that I think it is entitled to be called the Masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, putting it together with uh, other uh, tournaments to create, uh, you know, th- uh, the Grand Slam mm-hmm. or the, professional some, the modern Club. modern modern Grand Slam. I mean, you're you're really you're talking about Bob Drum. You know, and Arnold at mm-hmm. Cherry Hills, and, and, you know, and in 1960, of course, was the centenary year at St. Andrews. Arnold has won two, and now he's going to win the third. No, he's not. Okay. And <laughs> not if Australia's Chip, got anything Chip, to say Chip about it. And Tip Anderson, <laughs> Anderson, right, is Palmer's caddy. Mm. And he said, We came to 17, and Palmer drove it right over the sheds. Uh, he said, What is it, Tip? He said it's it's a seven. He oh. said, uh, okay, fine. So he hits a seven on the green in three putts. Same thing happened the second round. Finally oh. Kill Nagel kill Nagel is overhauling Palmer toward the end of the you know the last round and Palmer hits it over the sheds, perfect. He says, What is it, tip? He said, Damn it, Palmer, you know what it is. It's a seven. He said, Give me a six. He said, Damn it, Palmer, you'll be in the road. He said, Give me a six. He hits it in the road and then chips up, makes the putt, hands his putter to Tip and says, See there, Tip, you've been giving me the wrong club all week.
2: <laughs> Love it. That's what I'd, great characters, right? I had
1: no idea. a brilliant ago. story. A brilliant story. Uh, and Kel was one of the true great gentlemen of the game. I was lucky enough to have met Kel Nagel a couple of times uh, here in Sydney. And what an extraordinary and wonderful uh, man he was. What an achievement. That was lightning well, lock he's
0: an interesting character well so. there were there were two there were two extraordinary people from from uh, Australia among others you know mm-hmm. uh, but J Victor East and and uh, uh Kirkwood mm-hmm. uh Joe, Joe Kirkwood, Kirkwood. Mm-hmm. they came over in 21 to the open at St Andrews met this young 19 year old lad named Bob Jones they then uh, I think Kirkwood finished fourth or fifth uh, and then they went to uh, Pinehurst, and Jay Victor East said uh, to Donald Ross, I need a job. And he said, well, I just finished Biltmore Forest in Asheville, North Carolina. You can take that. And so he became the first pro at uh, at uh, Biltmore Forest in Asheville. And Joe Kirkwood went on tour with Walter Hagen. Hagen
1: that's right,
0: Great trick shot artist, right? Jim Kirkwood, one of the uh, exactly of the great yeah. Trick yeah. Shot artists. Yeah. So, two of the greatest Australians who did more for uh, you know, American golf, uh, than,
1: than maybe some others. Hey, we're still claiming Travis. I know he was naturalized, and, uh, but we still claim Walter Travis, too. Thank you very much. He was born right here in these shores, and of course, never played golf in this country. He's an extraordinary story in himself, isn't he? You're both a story, he is, he, Jones, yeah, so he's amazing, ma-
0: magnificent. Man. Of course, he started the American Golfer magazine, yeah. Which is uh you know one of the uh, best ever yeah. uh, but he got he got the same welcome that Jock Hutchison did in twenty one because he was native San Andrean, and they said he was a traitor yeah. <laughs> right no, so Hang on. a lot of a lot of partisanship, which is all good fun, yeah.
2: Not yeah. to mention the uh, banning of the Schenectady putter, the yeah, center shafted right. putter that followed years later and lasted for fifty years. Mm. A nice uh, thank you for participating in winning our tournament.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's add a, let's add a couple more logs on that fire. Okay. Yeah. They banned the Schenectady. Then uh, Hutchison in twenty one uses the rib face niblick. That's right. You're right. right. They yeah. banned that, and then Bob Jones uses the Walter Hagen concave, concave sandwich, and they banned that. So. Yeah. I,
2: I've got Thank one of those right much. in front of me. Yeah, wow. Here you go. <laughs> a
1: great story. This this stuff can go on endlessly, and we will. I've got my my feeling, Connor, is that Sid needs to come back. He's already. I agree. He's touched on four separate podcast topics at various times during today's chat, all of which could be their own show. And we've gone for nearly two hours, and I don't feel like we've even brushed the surface. So, uh, but I think we best uh, we best be winding it up. Uh, Sid, can I just say what an amazing. Privilege it's been to chat to you today. We really do thank you for taking the time. And will you come back if we ask you? Have we proved our
0: chops? Uh, well, uh, you know, the the, uh, the answer is yes. The question is when, and especially on this subject, because, uh, you know, the the whole notion of Bob Jones' hero as human being is still as viable today as it was, Absolutely. you know, 90, 90 years ago. Mm-hmm. Ninety years ago—that's amazing. Isn't You're it? talking almost ninety years. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It, it genuinely is. But we're still—but we're still talking about Bob Jones, yeah. and people say, "Why is that so?" And the answer is because we've never seen anyone quite like him. Not before. Here's a guy oh, who was uh, brilliant. He was an intellect. Mm-hmm. He was a sportsman. He was hero as human being, mm-hmm. uh, ambassador of the game. You know, uh, and. And a hero who never let us down. Yeah. Yeah. you know we, we've, we've been let down by so many heroes who you know they're wonderful on the field to play, but they go home and kick the cat and beat the dog and mm. and bet on their own uh, uh, sport. and we say, well isn't that a shame, but he's still the greatest player you know on the court? You know, shame on us. Uh, I say Bob Jones is a hero after five o'clock. The guy who goes home, on, after uh, winning whatever championships there are, he's the same guy, twenty four seven. What you see is what you get, and unfortunately, you know uh, the the greatest players, Jordan and and uh, yeah. you know Muhammad Ali, they came back to because they weren't satisfied with the record that they made. They wanted to pile another uh, title on top of what they had done in a vain attempt. Uh, to try to, to restore the luster. Bob Jones won the Grand Slam, and probably it will never be uh, matched again.
2: You know, On that point, Sid, I, I don't know why I speak for Rod, but I, having you back on, I think to touch just a little bit more on his playing career, but more about the man himself, yeah. is what I'm interested in. I mean, I know every, not everything. I'm sure you know more than I do on his playing career, but the, people know that story right people know that story and i think most of our uh listeners know that story but they don't know much about the man himself and i think that would be an even more interesting podcast to get a little deeper into the the man behind the myth if you will and by the way rod i have i have one more question that i have to ask Uh Sid. so why don't you go first Sid, and i'll ask you this
0: question from twitter no it's fine let's go
2: all right so um i have a question i promised to answer or ask it uh, this is from someone you may or may not know. Uh, the listener, uh, the question is, Sir, uh, Mr. Matthew, in one of your books, you have a dedication to Uncle Bobby. Who is Uncle Bobby, and can you tell us the story behind Uncle Bobby? And it, the, uh, the Twitter handle is Lauren Harrison. I'm not sure if you
0: know her. Uh, that would be my <laughs> middle daughter. That's right. <laughs> and And the answer is that they my kids always thought uh because of my obsession with Jones that uh he was an uncle of ours <laughs> Love that. and so the so the tongue in cheek is uh, the dedication to history of Bobby Jones clubs was to uncle Bobby uh which was an inside joke that Lauren is now raising He's a fan. Yeah. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think that tells us what a yeah. note to finish on. I think that tells us everything we need to know about you, Sid, and why we need to have you back. It's been fabulous to Absolutely. talk to you today. Thank you very much. And don't hang up. I'll yeah, talk to well, you about something
0: after we Y'all come. are doing good work. You know, golf history is uh, really where it's at, and, uh, and those who are willing to promote it uh, uh, deserve a lot of credit. It's so much more interesting and fun than people
1: think. It's got an image problem, Sid. Uh, there's no problem with the stories it's an image problem isn't it people think history's yeah. dry but it's not it's but, fascinating,
0: and yeah, fascinating Yeah, fascinating and interesting yeah and the fun, the people so. uh, you know when you when you have uh, characters like uh, tiger and and uh, a lot of the young kids that are coming on strong uh, you know it it uh, really gives you uh, a lot of hope for the future and and uh, the kids that are coming up yep. very up. important yep. Thank and you. of course it's uh, you know it's the best game ever devised because uh you know you you have to police your own conduct you have to mm-hmm. call ball you know your your foul balls and you got to play the ball where it lies yep. let's hope that And uh, very very few uh games uh have all of those components that's why probably the best game ever I agree without 100%. doubt
1: and let's continue to try to protect it. I think the forces are amassing to try to change some of those things. We'll talk about that later. Thank you, Sid. Don't hang up. I need to talk to you before you go. Uh, thank you for taking some time. Connor, thank you to you as well. Always fantastic to, uh, just to listen to your enthusiasm apart from anything else, but your knowledge is also welcome and appreciated. Thanks for you taking some uh, some time today as well.
2: Absolutely, Rod. Thank you for all the listeners. I know this is going to be an extremely popular podcast. Uh, we've done only a fraction of promoting it, but I think... Uh, this will set the new standard for podcasts going forward. Yeah. Um, I, we hope all of our fans enjoyed it as much as we did. I doubt you all enjoyed it as much as I did, because <laughs> I still've had goosebumps for the last two hours.
1: Which, and I know that you are telling the truth. fantastic to hear. Yes, we will indeed be back with the Talk and Golf History podcast. This might be our last won't be our last time with Sid. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we 've enjoyed talking. We 'll be back in a fortnight to do another episode of
0: Talk and Golf History.